0: After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe may be seated. Uh, Well, let me add a good morning to you as well, to those of you in person and those of you online um, as well. And uh, if you're a kid, uh, a reminder, uh, if you fill out a Kid Connects, we'll have a prize for you, which uh, today is a Santa pin. Uh, This one's mine. I'm not giving it away, but I have more to give away to you as well. Um, So a way for you to tune in or pay attention to to the sermon. And uh, we have been doing a series on heaven at Christmas, uh, which feels like a lot, and it is. But uh, Advent raises a question that's, that only heaven ultimately can answer. Uh, that when I think about Christmas traditions, I often uh, think about other people. Right? What makes Christmas meaningful is other people, whether it's Christmas morning with my kids, feasting with my fam- uh, family. Uh, for the holidays, we always make the Spamberg family butterscotch pie. Recipe, which uh, is amazing. If you're thinking butterscotch, you're probably not thinking about the right butterscotch. This butterscotch pie is incredible. And so having my kids now loving butterscotch pie, right, ties me uh, to to them, to my grandmother, whose recipe that is, even though she's no longer with us. So Avin raises a question we're going to think about this morning, which is, is who are the people of heaven? And more importantly, and, and listen, this is going to be the entire sermon, but, but the question, will we see those we loved and have lost again? Will we recognize one another in heaven? And I just want to be upfront. I want to be a little bit obnoxious with my answer to that question. Will we recognize one another in heaven? <clears throat> will we see those we love again? Here's my, my answer to that question. Will we recognize one another in heaven? It's yes. But no, but yes. I told you I was going to be obnoxious. Here's what I, I mean. Um, that that when, when, we, uh, when we think about heaven, that, that tends to be one of the most common questions is will we recognize one another? And I don't know like what Christian initially suggested that we will not recognize one another in heaven. But the text Joseph read for us makes clear that, that, that we will, to some extent, rec- recognize one another Uh, That in Revelation 7 through 9, when, when John is given a vision of what heaven is, we're told it was a great multitude, no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And that raises the question okay, well, how does John know that there are people from every tribe, tongue, and language? And that's probably because when he saw the people, they looked like they were from every tribe, tongue, and nation that apparently we retain our nationality, our ethnicity our own culture, into the new heavens and new earth. We are recognizable. And now, I'm not sure how the specifics are worked out uh, on that front. So, for example, will uh, the male pattern baldness so common within Western European cultures be retained into heaven? Will my Dutch heritage of male pattern baldness be recognizable in heaven, right? So when you get to heaven, you'll be like, oh, there's the bald Dutch guys. That's where they that's where they are. Um, I don't know if that's what uh, is being recognized here, but what's clear is that that people and their cultures and their ethnicity is is recognizable within heaven. The Bible goes further uh, than that as well. In John chapter twenty, verse twenty-seven, we see that Jesus was recognizable in heaven. When we read, uh, then Jesus said to Thomas, uh, "Put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe." That Jesus' body was recognizable, even recognizable to the point where. Uh, marks from his human life, his own crucifixion, were recognizable even in his resurrected glorified body. And third, the Bible makes clear that the resurrected Jesus body is the the pattern for our own resurrection. Philippians 3, through 21 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body if Jesus' resurrection body is the first fruits of our own resurrection body, and he was recognizable in heaven, um, then we will be recognizable in heaven. And so will we recognize one another in heaven? Yes. And so, listen, I think that's just starting there. We wanna, I want to go some different places in this sermon, but but just starting there with the good news. For those of us who have family members we've loved and lost who were in Christ, and the Christmas season is a time to both mourn their their what we've lost, but also to look ahead to being reunited with those whom we love. And so, yes, we will recognize one another in heaven, and that should be enormous hope and comfort and grace to us in a time of Advent. But as I said, I want to be a little bit obnoxious this morning, so I, that's what I'm going to be. Uh, so, yes, we will recognize one another in heaven, but also, no. And I want to say two things on that front, uh, to, uh, a little tongue-in-cheek uh, to, to that. And the first is, the way heaven is described is that heaven is, is global. The global nature of the people of heaven is a major theme in Revelation. Uh, both texts that Joseph read mention that. When we see the people of God before the throne worshiping, it's emphasized. It's not just a people, but it's a people of every tribe, every tongue Every nation, that's a theme that shows up at the end of the Bible, or at the end of Revelation as well. In Revelation 21, when the new heavens new earth are described, that image is taken even further, where we read, um, The city, the new heavens new earth, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. What I love about these verses is what it's saying is the glory of the nations will be brought into into the new heavens and new earth. So what that that means is different countries, different cultures, the food we eat, the technology we produce, the the unique beauty and uh, products of each culture will be brought into heaven. Heaven is global. But what's important for us to, to get is this is not just some random idea inserted into the end of the Bible's storyline. Um, like, you know, when, if you've ever watched a series that, like, it's clear they had no idea how to end the series. And then they just, the ending is, is just not fit with the rest of the show because the showrunner had no idea how to end, uh, how to land the plane. So not what's going on. This is actually the culmination of a theme that is central to the entire Bible storyline. is the global nature of God's own Heart. So, in Genesis 12, when the people of God begin and God goes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you into a nation yourself, one of the primary reasons God says that to Abraham is he wants Abraham to be a blessing to the entire world, to the nations of the world. That theme continues into the Hebrew prophets, where Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel do not just speak oracles and prophecies to Israel. They speak to all the nations. They, they address all the nations. And that's really unique because most ancient Near Eastern literature, so there was most other literature written at the time of the Hebrew Bible, the time it was written, does not have nations addressing other nations, does not have God, God's addressing other nations. That was unique to the Hebrew religion because God cared deeply about all of the nations being incorporated into his people. Even one of the primary messianic prophecies in Isaiah 11 of Jesus, a a prophecy read frequently at Christmas time, it ends with the whole world being full of the knowledge of God. God's aim is for a global people. Of course, this is central to Jesus' own mission. And his last words in the Gospel of Matthew to his disciples was that they were to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Spirit That's that's then worked out in Acts and Galatians, where you see all of these different cultures coming together, and you see enormous conflict around that. So if you ever hang out with someone who has a different culture than you, they assume different things, they eat different things, they dress in different ways, and it created all sorts of conflict. You see in Acts and Galatians, a number of the New Testament uh, letters, but it gets worked out because this is such a deep heart for God, is to have a global People And then, of course, in Revelation, we see the culmination, the final fulfillment, that what God had begun in the beginning with Abraham has actually happened. It's a global people. And so I'm being a little obnoxious when I say, listen, when we recognize one another in heaven, when we see our loved one in heavens, well, yes, in one sense, but that is far too small a vision of what heaven is supposed to be. Heaven is not just about me and my people the bald Dutch eating our butterscotch pies into eternity. That is not the vision of heaven that is given in Revelation. It is a global people. And this is one of the things that makes Christianity truly unique in, in the global landscape, both of religion but also of, um, of belief systems because it's the only world religion that has no roots in one ethnicity or one continent. You can't find the global home of Christianity because it's, it's spread out throughout the whole world. And I would just ask you, have you experienced that global reality of God's people here on earth? Have you experienced the multi-ethnic vision that God had from the beginning in your experience here on earth? This is pretty powerful to experience. Uh, When I went to China in 2017, uh, we were able to go into a church uh, in the, the city we were in, and and while it was primary, uh, primarily Chinese, it had people from all over the world. There are many different nationalities, uh, people from England, people from the States, uh, people from Africa, people from other parts of Asia, and it was just incredible to uh, certainly even for me, like as a as, as a as a Western European person going into that, not recognize like everyone looked very similar to me, and yet they were from very different places in the world, and it became clear so quickly how different they were, and it was incredible just to see. This, uh, many different nations worshiping together in China. A few weeks ago, if you remember when we had Katie Gray, uh, Gray on screen in her interview, she's in Iraq currently, um, someone from our own congregation, she mentioned that I think it was over 60 nationalities are represented at her church in Iraq. Right? This, the church is a worldwide reality. Have you experienced that? I remember my very first experience of that as a Christian, as a senior in high school. I worked for a, a daycare, a summer program for a church in Indianapolis where I, I lived. And I got connected because uh, on Monday nights, me and a few friends would go down and we would provide uh, childcare uh, for a financial seminar that, seminar that served homeless families. And so I met the person who ran the daycare. She appreciated what we, was, we were doing. And she offered us, uh, a couple of us, a job to go work her daycare over the course of the summer in Indianapolis. And it was, it was a blast. And I was only one of two white people at the whole summer camp. It was run by a black Baptist church in Indy, and I loved it. And one of my favorite things I did, uh, and this happened the first time, it was by, totally by accident, but then it became a standard thing. But if it rained, we couldn't take the kids out to go and play, so they would just go in the sanctuary. And it was like, <clears throat> just run it out, right? Whatever you gotta do, just get it out, right? That's, that's what we would do. And so there was a drum set in there, and one of the kids found, when one of the kids found out I was a drummer, they are like, J- play, start playing some drums. So I did, and when I started playing the drums, it just turned into a giant dance party. Uh, And I played for an hour, and the kids just danced. Now, listen, my church, uh, three thousand people in Brownsburg, was mostly white people. If I started playing drums in that sanctuary, there no one would dance. Okay, that's not how it would go. And so in uh, this in this sanctuary, and I'm just playing drums, it is just a party. I learned what the Harlem Shake is. Uh, That was popular then. Uh, I don't know. I obviously not up on dance moves now, but it's like they're teaching me dance moves, I'm playing, it was just a blast, and it was a totally different cultural experience than what I was used to, but it also raised a question for me, which is why, I mean, I went to a huge church, over 3,000 people, and I began to ask the question, why did no black people go to my church? Why was my church only made up of a single cultural reality? Listen, I don't, I don't ask that question to be politically divisive. More so because playing drums in that context opened me up into a window of the church that gave me an experience of the people of God that deepened my faith and, frankly, made it more compelling and exciting than the monocultural expression of Christianity I had grown up with. And listen, we live in a time right now of incredible racial tension. This summer we experienced that, and, and listen— To be real, our little church experienced conflict over that. And I've been thinking a lot about how do you move forward in a a cultural context like this? How can we in our own part of the world be a community of people who actually contribute something meaningful or some piece of meaningful healing to a culture that is tearing apart at the seams around the issue of race? Listen, I'm not going to pretend to have much of of a how on how to do that other than, than this. If I was disappointed of, and not just our own church, but just the global church's response within the state's response to the events of this summer, I felt like far too many Christians were settling for a vision that's less than the vision of heaven. Settling for a vision either where where there's cynicism that real healing could ever take place among different races, or... A lack of lament over the fact that our current experience of Christianity within the U.S. is actually unique in the broader global landscape in that we do not have churches that typically are made up of many different nationalities or ethnicities. We tend to sort more by our culture in this context. And the one word I want us to hear this morning is do not settle for a vision that is less than the vision of God throughout the entire Bible in the vision of God that is in Revelation 5 and 7, which is a people of all tribes and tongues and nation, worshiping before the throne. That may we be known for what we are called to be, which is a people of every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And while I have no idea how we are going to get there, the Bible is very clear, we will get there. So as our culture goes to war on this, may we not be led by cynical politicians who exploit these tensions to gain for themselves power. May we not may we not be led by people who exploit our differences as means of making money or of causing division among one another, but may we be led by the person of Jesus, who is so committed to this vision of a multi-ethnic people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, he actually shed his own blood for it. And if we are not willing to similarly shed our own blood to be a people of many different cultures, which ultimately is what is required to be a people of many different is shedding your own blood, giving your own circumstances or your own preferences away to be in community with others. May we follow Jesus' lead in, into that reality and be a people of hope in the midst of a culture of tension. But that raises a question, and it's the second thing I want to say, which is why is it so difficult to have people in community with different backgrounds? And the second thing I want to say about heaven, what we see about heaven as a community, is that heaven is a community built around Jesus. In her, uh, in her novel, O oh Pioneers, Willa Cather uh, sets up a tension between two characters, two main characters, Carl and Alexandra, and they both grow up in a small farming town in Nebraska, uh, but Carl, uh, he moves away, goes to the big city, chases his dreams all over the world, but Alexandra stays at this small, in this small Nebraska town and gives her life over to farming. And so late in the novel, they're talking to one another, Now Alexandra confesses she's jealous of Carl's freedom. He's gotten to travel the world. He's gotten to pursue whatever he's wanted. He's not been limited by uh, by anything. He's gotten to do whatever he wants. And she's jealous of that. But this is Carl's response to Alexandra's jealousy. He says, freedom so often means that one isn't needed anywhere. Here you are an individual. You have a background of your own. You would be missed. But off there in the cities, there are thousands of rolling stones like me. We are all alike. We have no ties. We know nobody. We own nothing. When one of us dies, they scarcely know where to bury him. Now, she writes this, and Willa Cather writes this in 1913, but it sets up a tension that's deeply embedded in our own 2020 world, which is that Carl's character defines freedom the way we typically define freedom. Freedom means I get to do what I want to do. I get to pursue what I want to pursue. I get to live how I want to live. And I'm not going to be limited by the community around me to limit my freedom. I define what is good and what is right and what is true, how I want to live, and I'm going to express that. However, that perspective, as Carl points out, makes community impossible. impossible. Freedom, as he says, so often means that one isn't needed anywhere. And so Willa Cather is naming an age-old problem. To have community, you have to submit your freedom, your autonomy, your desires, your will, for the good of other people, which is totally antithetical to the way freedom and the good life is defined in our own culture. But one of the things that is interesting about our moment is that you can sort of, you can sort of have it both ways in ways that probably wasn't true in 1913, is the internet feels like, or makes us feel like, uh, we can gather with people who, uh, who will let us pursue our own individual autonomy, who think like us, who talk like us, who agree with us we don't have to submit submit much of anything to be in community with them because they already agree with so much or almost all of what we already thought. And so we end up with online communities built around our common hobbies, common politics, common cultural backgrounds, whatever we want to build our own community around. However, what uh, Sherry Turkle says in her book Alone Together is that this digital life is not actually the depth of community we long for. And so what it feels like is we have it, we have the community, but we actually, we actually don't. <laughs> we have the, the veneer of community, but not real community. And so that raises a question for us, which is what is the church community built around? What do we have to submit our own personal autonomy to in order to have a meaningful community of people? And I want to answer that question by asking what organizes the people of heaven? Revelation 5, we read, Jesus is spoken to in this, this vision of worship, uh, worship in heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God. So heaven is a community built around Jesus, who redeems sinners, who sheds blood in order to reconcile us back to himself and to one another, and who dies, but doesn't die just to beam us up to heaven. He actually sheds his blood, we're told, to make us a new kingdom. So I didn't read this part, but let me finish what Jesus, or what we read of Jesus. So he is slain by his blood, he ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language, people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. All right, so Jesus sheds his blood. To make us a new kingdom of people, a new person, or a new, a new people, a new, a new nation, a new nationality to some extent, made up of many nationalities, but a new kingdom. But it's all organized around the person and the vision and the gospel of Jesus. And so if a church community is organized around the gospel, it creates space for people of all kinds of backgrounds and politics and race and class to gather together. But that's really difficult because the tendency of human beings is to only gather around people who affirm my individual pursuits. To only gather around people with background, a background like mine, with politics like mine, with race like mine, with class, socioeconomic wealth like mine. To gather ourselves and our communities around what we care most about, not what God cares most about. And listen, here's the thing. Everyone thinks that they're building their life around the gospel and Jesus, if you're a Christian. Like we all, no one thinks, no one I think at least who desires to follow Jesus intentionally thinks, yeah, I've, I've set up a, uh, an organizing principle for my life or my community that's outside of the bounds of the gospel. And yet, that is the challenge for us, is to actually organize our community around the person of Jesus. And so that's why at the beginning of 2021, The most important thing we're going to do as a community together is to learn how to read our Bibles well. That too often, church community or Christian community is not built on the gospel, even though we think that it is, but on what we care most about. So we abandon core teachings that are in the scriptures, or we organize around something that, that is not central to who Jesus is, but a side element of what Jesus is. And again, while all of us, me included, want to think that what I care most about is what God cares most about, read the Bible for two minutes and you find people are always beginning to care more about their own things than the things of God. And so what we want to be, while we want to believe that what we desire most is the gospel, that what we are shaped by is, most, is, is the gospel, that is why reading the scriptures together is so important, because that becomes our check. Are we actually organized around the gospel, around the person of Jesus? Or our own desires, our own individual pursuits of autonomy, our own uh, our own hobbies, our own backgrounds, our own politics. Heaven is a community built around Jesus and a community built around Jesus, we're told in Revelation, is a community of people of every tribe, every tongue, every language. So will we recognize one another in heaven? In one sense, yes, right? Like this is the good news: the people that who love Jesus in your life, who you miss dearly, you will see again. But in another sense, no. It's gonna be it's gonna be even better than that. It's a global community of people built around Jesus. But third and finally, uh, another yes: that we will recognize one another in heaven. And here I want to lean into Jesus saying that we are to be a uh, kingdom of priests to God who will reign with him on the earth. Uh, that author Peter Kreef has a great little line where he reflects on the question that I started with this morning, that will we recognize our friends in heaven? And he says this, this, is the way he answers that question. In fact, only in heaven will we really know our friends from within. And what he's getting at is that who we were meant to be as people, has not yet been fully realized. The beauty of the people we are meant to be is not yet complete. And that's what Krebs is getting at with Revelation 5 is hinting at, which is Jesus' intent in reconciling us back to him is not just to beam us up to heaven, but to make us a kingdom of priests to our God, to reign with him on the earth. In other words, the people of Jesus become kings and queens alongside the Lord Jesus, to reign on this earth. In heaven, we will become the person, the people, that we were always meant to be, perfect in form, ready to be, to be actually given the authority and power to reign on this earth alongside Christ. And so how does, how does heaven help us inform about the way in which we become these people? How are you and I to become people who are perfect in the way of Christ? And I want to close, we, we need two things this morning. We need Christmas, and we need a Christmas community. That Christmas is the time when we're reminded of Jesus' utter commitment to us. He is so committed to healing your sin nature. He is so committed to perfecting you, to making you into the person who will one day reign with him on the earth. He literally became an infant child to take on the full human experience. A helpless infant in his mother's arms. A teenager trying to struggle to fit in in middle school. A young man wrestling with being a single man in a married world. Living all of this, taking all the way to the cross, where he bears our imperfections, our sin, and our shame. And Christmas is where we remember the utter and complete and completely ridiculous commitment of Jesus to us sinners. As Dane Ortland writes in his book, Gentle and Lowly, fallen anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. Come to me, says Christ. I will embrace you into my deepest being and never let you go. That Christmas is, should be a reminder of how ridiculously committed Jesus is to you. Your sin is not a disqualifying factor in him pursuing you. Your sin is not going to prevent him from making you into the person that he intends you to become. Jesus is committed making you perfect, making you into a queen, into a king, so that you may reign with him on the earth. Have you made that commitment to him? If not, that's something we always want to talk about. If you've not made a commitment to Christ, we would love to talk to you about that. If you have made a commitment to Christ, you need to understand his commitment to you is far better than your commitment to him, and it is not based on your faithfulness to him. It is not based on your goodness to It is based on his commitment to you. And Christmas is a sign of how committed he is to you. And every time you see a baby Jesus in a manger somewhere, that is the sign of how ridiculous his commitment is to you. He will not abandon you. He will not cast you out. He is committed to making you into the perfect person he intends you to become. So that's, listen, we need Christmas, but we need a Christmas community. And what I mean is, is the best way for us actually to believe that Jesus is that committed to us is to have a community that is that committed to us that our role as a church is to be a community of people gathered around one another, committed to, uh, to being the people we are going to become in heaven, and believing the people around you are going to become perfect one day, and you get to partner with God in that work. But too often, churches are not that. It's why one of the most common words non-Christians use to describe Christians is hypocrite. A word actually coined by Jesus to describe people who exhausted him because they were experts in pointing out the faults of others, but blind to their own. It's easy to meditate and to dwell on the sins of other people, the way other brothers and sisters in Christ can fail us. I can fall into that trap. Just this week, I had to make a phone call to someone, and my, there's almost a part of me just hoping we could have a fight so that I could show how wrong that person was and how right I am. And instead, I, for whatever the miracle of God, I approached it slightly relationally. And even in the phone call, I felt so convicted that I was more... I would have been happier at being proven right than I would have been at helping this person see more of the beauty of Jesus in their own life. Right? I just remember being on the phone and God just asking me, do you actually care about this person? Or do you care about more why they made you mad? That the church community should be much like what my uh, high school golf instructor was like. Uh, In high school, I took uh, some lessons with a golf professional name was Scott, and he wanted me to, again, just by swinging the club a few times, and I did. He watched me hit a few balls, and after watching me hit a few balls, he said this to me. He said, if I'd had a swing like that when I was in high school, I would be on the PGA Tour right now. Now, listen, that was a ridiculous statement. I was not that good, and I had seen many other kids my age who were way better than I was ever going to be, and yet that statement filled me with such courage and hope and pride Because someone actually believed that I could become something good. Imagine being surrounded by a community who is more in tune with what Christ is making you into than everything that is wrong with you. Doesn't mean sin doesn't matter. Doesn't mean we, we don't call one another to repentance. But heaven, the story of Christmas, is not a God tired of sinners, worn out by the people he came to save. The story of heaven, the story of Christmas is not like what I do with my kids the thousandth time I've told them to stop fighting. Where I go up, my, I'm, my fists are clenched, I'm angry, I'm exasperated. I'm just like, if you don't say anything for the next ten minutes, I will give you whatever you want. That is not what God is like towards us. No, he comes in power. He comes in glory. He comes in grace to make us into the people he intends us to be. That is the message of Christmas. That is the hope of heaven. And it's what we sing every, every year together. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. So hark the herald angels sing. Father, seeing just some of the people in this room now, who I, some known for weeks, others I've known for, for years, and just in moments even, imagining what they will be like when you've raised them to new life at the last day. Wow, God, what a hopeful, what a hopeful word we have for one another in perpetuity as a community. And God, that word is true because of Jesus' commitment to us to become a child, born into this world, to go to a cross, to endure death in the worst, most shameful way possible, to be raised to new life, to promise us where he's coming again, and to tell us to wait patiently as he does the slow, good work of making us whole again. Spirit, do that work even now, I pray in Jesus' name.